Hi everyone, it's Joachim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Riku Rakkola, a co-founder and CEO of Traplight, a mobile gaming studio from Tampere, Finland. Riku and his team were trying to find success for several years until they finally got the right approach to game development. And through months of prototyping different ideas, they came up with the right idea and started their validation process. This podcast is brought to you by Playtest Cloud, who make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient. Get videos of real players playing your game so you can make decisions based on player feedback. I've been using Playtest Cloud for years, and it's always been so revealing in what you can actually find out from real players playing your game or even an early prototype. Playtest Cloud has their own player pool of about 160,000 players, so you can choose exactly the sort of players you'd want to have in your playtest right on their website. They support targeting by player age, gender, and what other games they've been playing. They handle all the logistics behind playtesting, including getting your builds to the players safely. They also have NDAs in place for all the players, and their software deactivates the game automatically after the playtest. So testing in-development games is no problem. And the best thing is that you can get started right away. No SDK or code changes required. Just upload the build file on their website and you'll be watching videos in no time. Give it a try at playtestcloud.com and mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. Riku, my man, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you, Joachim. It's great to be here. Great. Really happy to have you on the show sharing the story of Traplight. So let's get into the meat of the discussion. And how did you get into the game industry and you eventually found Traplight? Uh, well, that's a long road I've taken so far. So if I wind up all the way to the beginning, it was actually, I was uh, 13 years old when I got first interested about actually making games and coding games. And that's how I basically started back in the days of Atari and Amiga and C64 and computers like that. And uh, I always loved programming. So that is actually my background and kind of introduction to gaming businesses from that size. So hobbyist projects all the way, all those years, and then later moving on, of course, to program uh, on a PC and uh, building games in that environment. And professionally, it all started in uh, 2007 when I joined uh, Universomo. That was a company here in Tampere where our company is also located. It was a mobile games company building games for Java platform at that time. And I joined there as a programmer and was there for a couple of years, getting my expertise on how to develop mobile games. And before that, I didn't know anything about mobile games, just from traditional game building on different computers. But that was my introduction. And then later on, went to find Traplight, and that's its own story. Yeah. What was the first kind of reaction for you when you were making the first mobile games at Universum? Was it like, wow, this is an interesting platform? Or what was it like? Yeah, I actually loved the challenge because I was a kind of programmer that was always interested about 
how to optimize code and how to work in a limited environment. So I think it was very natural, actually very exciting at that point, because as you know, the environment was super limited back then compared to nowadays, where you actually have a decent amount of performance and you're not limited by the memory or performance that much. In the Java days, the challenge was there. So I really enjoyed it coming from the optimizing background. It was fun. I remember the Java games had this 64 kilobyte like package size limit. And then now it's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, And it was crazy in that company. The games were basically ported to a so huge device space with so many different performance classes and memories. So it's basically the same game could take up like 40 kilobytes on some device and then up to 200 kilobytes on others. So the games had to be designed in a way that they could actually fit in the multiple different screen sizes and performance. How was it working with the teams back then? You were a programmer, so did you have a, like a designer? What was the interaction with the management and kind of like the structure there? I think it was pretty similar as we have today and the companies have today in a sense that usually the teams had graphic artists, designer, few programmers. All the games were like single player games and very much client heavy in a sense that not complicated backends. But otherwise, the teams, the structure is pretty much the same as any indie company nowadays. So in that company, we had multiple teams with four to six people working on one game, basically. Yeah, the most lean kind of like setup that you could have. Yeah. And then going from there, where you're kind of like the entrepreneurial road, where did you get the entrepreneurial bug from? And how did that happen? And you started your own company then? Yeah, I had a little bit of background of doing like, I was working on multiple different things before I get in the game business. But even back then, I had a small company. At the same time, I was studying, I was doing some work as a, like an IT consultant and just kind of technical IT stuff. And I knew a little bit of how to run a simple company, like, of course, just by myself. So that made it kind of easy to get into starting a company. But the bug really came from, I would say, iPhone was the deciding factor. So the year that iPhone really started to break through and the App Store game, it was, of course, a huge difference from the Java gaming days where operators controlled everything. There was actually the dream was that even with one or two people, you could build a game that you could actually sell in the store. So I think that was the kind of deciding point that now it's a good time to start a company. And also the company that we worked in was going down. So it was acquired by THQ and um, the future was not a bright anymore for Java games. So it's the right timing. Mm, so the founding team, did you guys work together before starting Traplight? Yeah, we actually worked together at Universum. So we are three founders. So we worked together there. So it was quite an easy transition in that sense. Yeah, you didn't need to kind of build a relationship and knowing how yeah. everybody works and things like that. What was the plan in the early days for Traplight? The first plan was that I actually quit the company a little bit before the other founders. So the, the first plan was that I wanted to make a game on iPhone. So basically, I designed a simple game, which I then uh, worked with Yari, one of the co-founders, and he did the graphics for the game. So we were basically only two guys then. And I actually just quit my uh, job and uh, just stayed home and coded the game in seven months. And then we got a publishing deal with Chilingo, and that was kind of the beginnings. Why we set up the company exactly in 2010 and early, I think it was April 2010, was the fact that we needed to get an entity to actually get the revenue from Chilingo. So that was mm. kind of like the first uh -huh. thing we set up the company, we instantly started to kind of put out a game, started to get revenue. So it was kind of a good timing in that sense. Did you look for revenue 
was the target for the company immediately? Or was yeah. it more like, you know, let's just make games we're not scared about if we don't make money now? What was the plan there? Yeah, the actual plan was that I wanted to make a game on iPhone because I saw that there was quite a bit of stories back then that few of the people created simple games and they got quite a bit of money out of that. So I wanted to try that role. So we created a game with Yari and we just pushed it out there and we're hoping to uh, make a decent amount of money out of that. But then, then actually kind of move into making more games and so forth. So the whole idea was to get the revenue from the day one. Mm. So we just put up the company only when we knew that the product was ready, we wanted to launch it. So, What was the steps from there? Like, you know, after the first year, did you already have people on board? Was it like... Yeah, yeah it was organic from there in a the sense that when we put out the first game, we got a little bit of cash from that, but not anything major. So I think we did like 50K or something total sales that we got from the game. And of course, that helped to get a small office and start working together. And initially, we thought that Maybe we do a sequel to that game. We continue working on a new game or something like that. But then we were actually contacted by Red Lynx and we kind of got involved with them, just creating contract stuff for them. And that kind of started the second, or should I say first era of the company, where basically we're for hire company for the first three years after our first game. Was that something that you guys were happy with to be in a work for hire kind of like mode? Or was it kind of like, yeah, we need to break out of this and do our own titles independently? Or how did you see it back then? I think we were pretty happy at first because for me, at least, the whole idea was the freedom of being an entrepreneur and just making a living out of it. So we didn't have any grand plan of making millions and getting funding and stuff like that. Because at that point, I didn't know anything about the investment side of things or how that works or... I didn't have any background on startups or anything. So it was kind of like, just let's make an honest living out of this and support ourselves. And it's just cool to be, you know, an entrepreneur in the sense that you can make your own timetables. But you've kind of like grown into the CEO role. So how did you learn that? Did you have executive coaches? Did you use mentors? Like, what was the idea there? Banging my head against the wall. But (laughs) of course, later on, like how things actually work from there was that we... Just working with Red Lynx guys. That was the first, because of course, Red Lynx is like a big company. They had already multiple success with the game. So I kind of, at the same time when we were working with those guys, we learned a lot because we visited the office a lot and we kind of see what does a company look like when they're doing their own stuff and so forth. So that was kind of the first mentoring I actually got maybe from Tero and Amba from Red Lynx. And then later on, when we started to seek for investment, that was kind of the yeah, tipping points in the company again. Came after yeah. the first three years. What was kind of the roller coaster ride for the company in the following like five years after the creation? Like you were outsourcing, doing work for hire. You tried your own games eventually. What was that? Yes, that was, as you said, quite a roller coaster ride. <laughs> because we started as a contract for a company basically after that one game that we did. Then after three years, we basically lost the biggest client, which was Red Lynx at the time. So we lost them because they shifted gears to pretty much focus on just trials and building the in-house studio and they were acquired and so forth. So there was a lot of changes. At that point, I think we really had that idea. So where do we want to take the company? We were discussing that with the founders and kind of, of course, running something for multiple years and seeing that, okay, it's fun. It's okay. We can make a living. But what is the next step? Maybe at that point, we really started to have that idea that could we 
find an investment? Could we work with our own stuff and try to break it in the free-to-play games? Because during those three years, the business also changed. Because when we started the contract for stuff, Angry Birds just came out. It was still the time of the paid games that really made most of the money. And after that contract work period in 2013, it was all about free-to-play games. So mm-hmm. it's kind of shifted during that time. So then we wanted to decide that the next step, let's make a free-to-play game. Let's get some investors. Let's start to play, play this game a little bit different. So it was basically, let's try it out. And it wasn't yeah. like something that you were forced into. <laughs> In a sense, we could have you know, started to find new clients and continue on that road. But we also saw that as a possibility. So now that we actually lost the biggest client and we're kind of struggling with the contract work stuff, do we want to have this in the future as well? Or do we try something else? And we decided to try something else. And that was the biggest, I think, hurdle in the history of the company and how to move from that space when you're working as a contract work studio to an actual startup mode and getting the funding. That ended up being a seven to eight month period where we didn't get any salary from the company. I was actually living at the office for six months and so forth. It was crazy times. Did it look very gloomy? Was, do you remember that period as one of the hardest times was, for the company? No, it wasn't gloomy. It was just so many unknowns. So it was just a leap to the unknown. So mm-hmm. luckily we were all in that point in our lives back then that we could actually take the risk. We could make through that time of not getting paid and somehow were able to cope. But yeah, getting that first round of funding all the time during that six to seven months, we saw the light at the end of the tunnel in a way that we had the negotiations ongoing. We knew that we were going to get there, but it was just, uh, you know, funding round always takes time. And there was always that uncertainty that can we pull this off? Can we get How much did you actually raise in the first round? The first, why did you get the money? What was the reason? We actually built our own tech at that time and we had a, dream of creating a game to mobile at that point that would be really heavily influenced by Minecraft and Little Big Planet and all those big UGC games at that time. And we actually had a pretty nice tech already built to build that kind of games because of all the work we did with Red Lux, but also we were working on our own like technical stuff at that time, pretty much on the background. So that's what we wanted to do. And I think the biggest hurdle was getting the first investors to trust the team, trust our vision that we can build this kind of game. And in the first, like, you know, somebody saying no, what kind of feedback did you get when they were saying no? <laughs> because for me, I wasn't used to dealing with investors at all. So it was a huge learning curve to even start to speak the same language as mm-hmm. those guys. So obviously, I think but we were just very open. We started to discuss with the local investors here on different like investment happenings and then just meeting people and in Nick Diamonds and parties and trying to find somebody interested in investing in games. And from each of the discussions, we got some tips and tricks on how to basically build your deck, how to sell this thing, how to do it. So looking back now, obviously, even the decks and the kind of the ideas that we sold back then to the first investors, looking back them now from this perspective is that, of course, they're very, very like... <laughs> How would I say naive in, in many ways and missing some key information. But I think that the biggest thing was that we found an investor that had a dream of the like kind of understood what we wanted to make and mm-hmm. also liked the same kind of games and was very interested in investing in mobile games at that time and liked our vision basically. So. Yeah. Going forward from there, you got the funding and then you went out and 
built the game, released it. How was that like period in the company history? Yeah, it sounds very easy. Just build the game and release it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It happened fast, but yeah, it took a long time. So right. we have to like uh, go forward for like four years with that. So we actually ended up raising multiple rounds during that time. And it was quite a process to build that first game in many ways. Obviously, we grew the team during those years as well and realized that actually creating a good quality free-to-play game, very server-heavy, like back-end-heavy game, requires quite a, quite a bit of people. And then even more so now that when you start to think about all these different roles in the company. But anyway, there was multiple challenges, of course, constantly worrying about money, mm. trying to uh, always find the next round or trying to speed up the development that we would get something new out. And that's a constant struggle when you're building a game. And especially when the round that we raised was quite small at the time. So it was just like a very small seed round and then, then going forward from there. And the game was quite ambitious. So it expanded in scope. We did a lot of mistakes in a sense that we focused on really fine-tuning some of the core gameplay elements instead of just trying to get the game out as soon as possible. And there was multiple factors, and the product was quite big. So there were so many, many challenges along the way, but we constantly believed in that game. So in a sense, we knew that the game is good and we wanted to make it. When did you realize that maybe this game won't be the thing? Did you actually go into like your latest game already and you were still developing your Big Bang Racing game at that stage? Big Bang Racing is still up and running, so we still have it running, but we haven't been developing it actively for like, a, I think, a couple of years now. We've been mostly been in like maintenance mode on that game. So, But yeah, mm-hmm. the, the story, what happened with the launch then is that the game took much more time to finish than we originally thought. As is the case with a lot of gaming companies, especially those that first try to tackle this kind of big free-to-play game. So, yes, so we a very a ambitious time. project. Yeah. We took a long time building that game and then finally got to a soft launch. I think it was early uh, 2016 and uh, started to get some feedback on the game. And then we were in a mode of getting the first data, analyzing that, trying to understand what is working, what is not, and just doing a lot of different iterations in the game for the six months before the launch. And at that point, it really started to dawn, okay, the game is okay. Like we have okay retention. People love the game, like give it very high ratings and so forth. But then we started to also worry about the monetization model. And uh, we've already seen the, in the soft launch that, okay, the, the monetization metrics are nothing spectacular. So, so of course, let's improve them. And, there we kind of learned the hard way, the fact that if you have a, like a monetization model in the game and it's somehow crippled or, or it's not working in perfect sync with the meta game or the actual core game, then you can do a lot of stuff, external stuff, add different offers and try to find ways to sell stuff. But it's still really, really hard to improve the monetization KPIs. And also retention KPIs. Once you have a big game, it's really hard to pinpoint those parts that really make a difference on those KPIs. So basically, we learned that coming out very late in the soft launch phase makes it really hard to iterate the game and make any meaningful changes. You can do some, but it's really a tough battle. So let's go into like the recent game that you guys have built, Battle Legion, which is something that I was very like happy that you guys have succeeded in getting into a phase in the company's history where you're kind of like at a really good spot going into the future, like hearing your story about how you built the game and really wanted to share it today on the show. Like, 
So what was happening in the company when you guys were just about to try out this new prototype, which eventually became Battle Legion? Yeah, so what happened after the Big Bang Racing is that we tried to improve the game. After the soft launch, we launched globally, and we actually got quite a bit of featuring on that game, and we were happy to get a lot of downloads, and that was kind of our like the calling card, and Apple really loved the game and Google and, and so forth. And uh, we were lucky at that point to basically have some tools to justify the next rounds and get the investors and like show that, okay, we can create a good game. We didn't do such a good work with the monetization, but I think that we can fix it in the next products. So we can actually improve a lot from there. And we learned so much during that process. So it was totally different after that, when we got the next round of funding, and we realized, okay, now Big Bang Racing, we're running it, but we can see that the potential for a big hit is not there. We kind of finally got into the point where we said to ourselves, okay, this is not the breakthrough game. It's an okay game, but we cannot monetize it properly. It was a huge freedom at that point when we decided, okay, let's get back to a company where we're not working on a single game. Let's just start to break the company into smaller teams. Let's say take some time to investigate, take all our learnings and then you know, investigate totally new game ideas and kind of start from the scratch. Did you have there um, an idea that it can be any kind of game or was it like it needs to be something that we can quickly develop? At first, actually, there we went through a lot of discussion, internal discussion, obviously, what we want to do now and what makes sense and so forth. And quite a bit of time we were still trying to uh, kind of have that UGC element there because that was so strong in the DNA of the company at that point. The huge generate content. It's so cool when when you can include a big community on the game and it gives you so much value from the marketing perspective and so forth. But soon we realized that we cannot really box anything like that. So so there's also a lot of interesting ideas that are outside of the UGC, UGC thinking that we still want to consider. And we basically gave people free hands to design and come up with different designs, what they would like to make. And yeah, we did have to go through a lot of discussion around what are we looking for from those designs. And I think that eventually, after going through a lot of different designs, it started to become more clear that we really needed to consider this time the the business aspect of the game. So we were pretty much looking at the concept that is the core gameplay fun. That is always the case that you are looking for. But after that, I think that the most important thing is that is the meta game solid? Is the meta design solid to actually sustain a free-to-play economy? I think that was the obviously big learning from Big Bang Racing and designing the game in a way that, okay, can we build the progression systems? Can we build the meta layers in a way that we can monetize? I've put together a list of the top 10 questions that investors have asked me when I've been pitching my previous games companies to them. Check out the list at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash ask. That's EliteGameDevelopers.com slash ask. A-S-K. What was the way forward to actually find some games to put out into testing in the market? After we started that kind of like switch in the company and change and we split into, we had three teams at some point with all of the teams designing new games. And the idea was to come up with a process that we first had this 
workshops on behind of coming out with different ideas and people could come out with different ideas on their own or they could work together in a company their working time to come up with different core concepts and then we would run a short like three production on those concepts to kind of find out if all the elements are there if there's an element that you know can we create a free to play game around this concept can we create a good core gameplay how big is the project because one thing we wanted to restrict a bit uh, was that we didn't want to get in the game that took two to three years to prove itself. So one thing was that let's make these kind of games we can get fast to market. Or at least like the early version of the game needs to be fast to make. Of course, after that, you can add a lot of stuff as the games are services now. So you basically keep up expanding those services. But the core needs to be testable pretty fast. So yeah, we worked with three teams. Some of the projects or most of the projects we already killed in the internal reviews. Just Building a simple prototype of the core, kind of thinking our way around how the meta would work. And if there was some big missing piece, for example, that the core is very fun, but how do you monetize it? How do you upgrade this? How do you make it viable free-to-play game? If we couldn't find answer to that, we would just kill the project and so forth. So there was this year, year and a half of just working with multiple teams and trying to find those concepts. Did you feel that in that year and a half you were progressing? even though you didn't find the right one until like so much yeah. later. Yeah, I think we were definitely progressing in a way that the ideas got more suitable over time. So each project we killed, we had some reason to killing it. And we kind of took that learning a little bit. But I think that overall finding that one game that works or where everything clicks together is, of course, like a process where you, you cannot really predict when that comes because somebody else always comes up with the original idea in some magical way that yeah. is usually the process. So, so you cannot really know if it's going to take a year or two years or how long you are going to you know, have to use to really find that working one. For Battle Legion, what was kind of like the team like? How were they working on the game? What were their inspirations? And what was the testing moment like? And going from there to seeing some engagement metrics. So with that game, it was one of the games developed by one of the teams inside the company. And uh, it was originally, I think, three people just building the prototype. And then they had the core game mechanic fleshed out, which was, and they built the prototype very fast. So I think it was like a few weeks to get the first prototype of basically just armies running around the screen, two armies, and then just testing which one of them will be. And the idea was pretty simple in a way that it was almost like chess. So you would just arrange three different units into different positions on the field, and then you would see what happens. So instantly looking at that core, you can see that, okay, if we expand the unit selection, if we make upgrade system to this, you can very easily see that there's a free-to-play game economy there. It's just like in the DNA of that game. What was the original idea was to create a game that is more like a, I would say, spectating game in a sense that it's super casual in a way that it requires strategy, but it doesn't necessarily required the user to be heavily involved during the game matches. And in, also, we wanted to make it async in a way that we don't want to make a real-time free-to-play. So those were the kind of the things that we looked for in that prototype, that specific prototype. When everybody in the company fell in love with it, that was the first test. So everybody was always discussing during the coffee breaks that what strategy is the best in the game. And do you place the dogs in the front or in the back or the archers in the back or in the front? And like these kind of things. And when you see people discussing these things, you understand that, okay, there's something to it. So what we wanted to then make is we wanted to uh, get it to our players as quickly as possible. 
how did you know that you're going to want to do that and not, you know, oh, the graphics need to be better or there needs to be more units here? And, you know, were there these kind of discussions and how did you kind of yeah, get over was, those? Yeah, yeah, it's always a discussion. And of course, especially usually the core team wants to, it's not ready, we want to add this, we want to add this. So, of course, it's always a compromise in a sense. What we did then, we basically discussed with the team and said that let's try to test with people and let's try to get the engagement numbers as fast as possible. Because we knew from Big Bang Racing and we knew from other games that we tested during that year and a half that seeing the first metrics, especially the retention, understanding the feedback, the very early feedback, and can people actually understand the game and do they play after the first day? That's super important. It's also for the team that they can see that, okay, if the game works, they get more like a more validation and they are more sure about the project and continue more easily. So it's very important. So basically we did a compromise that let's set up a time frame that you can improve the game, for example, 12 weeks. I think it was 12 weeks at that point. So basically three months, let's get it to a, as good shape as possible internally and then just evaluate it out. Just putting it in the Google beta program and, and get some users. To it. Yeah. What were the numbers then that you were seeing there when you did the beta test? Doing the first beta is the most exciting thing because you can have some expectation, but you still don't know at all. It can be anything. And of course, at that point, we had a lot of data from Big Bang Racing. So that was our, of course, biggest comparison point in a sense, even though the game is very different, the genre is different. And we also had, a, of course, a lot of numbers that we heard from different sources that we kind of knew what we were looking at. Our first checkpoint was to see the D1 and understand what the D1 looks like. And uh, we kind of had the internal numbers in mind that, okay, we knew that if the D1 is something like 20%, 30%, it's really hard to start to improve the game. But other than that, we didn't really have any expectation of what to get. But what we did see is, I think the first test, we got enough users to actually measure that. So I think we got like 1,000 users. I don't remember what the first country was. It was probably Brazil or Philippines or something like that. So we knew that the retention is not even the highest possible. But we knew from big bank raising comparing that those countries, if we can get like 40% plus with that row of a game, it's going to be good. And what we saw was like 45, 50% D1 almost in the first version, very simple version. So that gave us a lot of confidence that, okay, this game has something. Validated the feeling inside the company. How did you make decisions based on the numbers going from there to new updates and changing the game? I've been discussing with, with uh, Henrik Suronen for a long time. He's, he's part of our company and you know has been a long-time advisor and investor in our company. And we had a great discussion a couple of years ago where he actually came out with the idea of measuring mostly the kind of curve between D3 and D1 and then D7 and D3 and so forth. And he had a lot of examples of different games and he, he had been investigating into that. So we kind of took his advice and started to Mostly look at the D1, D3 ratio at first. That was kind of the, the thing. So first, when we saw that the D1 is there, of course, our first target was let's improve the D1. But I think the second thing was let's try to get D3 also measured. And we got the, from the first test, we got some D1, D3 ratio. And the first thing was to improve that. So basically, let's add more content to the game a little bit to kind of have players enough to stick for three days. And let's make sure that there are no barriers that would drop the players at that point. That was the first target. What was the ratio target there? 
So discussing with Hendrik, he always thought that 0.7 is good. <laughs> okay. Know, of course, there's differences and so forth. But I think that our first like D1, D3 ratio was 0.3 or something like that, very low. So we were losing a lot of players because there was nothing to do after like one game. There was no progression bars of any kind of any targets in the game. So of course we lost a lot of players, but improving that actually was a really good decision on, on trying to focus on that ratio. Because when we added certain elements in the game, for example, we added more content, we could instantly see that, okay, we added some new units, some things to do, some progression bar in the game. The D3 went up and the ratio really went up. So we could see that from the 0.3, we got to 0.5 and so forth. And we always had that idea, okay, let's try to get to that 0.7. That, that was the good number So, <laughs> from Henrik's perspective. When you were happy with the ratio, then you would go after day seven and onwards. Yeah. So basically just moving onwards. And we are still on that same road. So now just what we're looking at is the D30 to D14 ratio and so forth. So we're just always just starting from the beginning of the game and working our way to the more like the end game. Because obviously at the early days, the game needs to have a lot of content and a lot of progression elements to be able to get decent D30, as you know. So basically you have to take that order. So basically start to improve the early game first and then move your way forward there. For a lot of entrepreneurs, then you go into like, okay, the investors are always asking for what are your numbers? So you guys had this kind of like very clear road and focus on what you're doing there. What was the kind of reaction to people who, the money people? <laughs> yeah, I think, of course, as you said, the investors are asking for numbers. And luckily enough, these days, I think, at least what I've seen during the past like five years is that the investors have been getting smarter in a way. <laughs> so I think that the overall business has evolved in a sense that pretty much now you can discuss with the numbers very well. And people have so many reference points. So back in the early days, it was like, People were not always sure what these numbers mean and what is a good number and what is not. But nowadays, I think it's very good in that sense. So discussing with investors with those numbers were really easy in a sense, because it's another thing to have a good game and, you know, the game looks good when you show it to some investor, but they always the next question is about the numbers. And when you have those numbers to back up that good feeling about the prototype, then it's usually an easy discussion from there. Everybody can see that, okay, this game is worth making. They can see that, okay, if you do this right now, you have a lot of potential on your hands. So talking with investors after those kind of numbers, it's much more easier than with average numbers. And then you're not in a hurry to raise in a sense, but then your investors are seeing that you're constantly improving the numbers and suddenly your company's the valuation increases and they need to get in when it's still like, you know, cheap. <laughs> so. Yeah, that might be the case. But we actually were in a position where after Big Bang raising, we had a had cash left from in a bank from the previous round, but we were really on the clock. So coming up with Battle Legion and building the game to a point where we could actually get those numbers was in a way, we were in a kind of hurry in a way that after we got the first launch numbers and so forth, we realized that we have to start raising the new round anyways. So it was kind of, it came on the right time because yeah. you know, six months later, we would have been in a really, really tough position again. Yeah, there's always timing and everything. How has the company changed as you've been soft launching and growing Battle Leech and you've shifted the whole company back to one game? Yes. So obviously there was kind of this, this cycle that big bag racing, we were all working on one game. 
Then we split the company for different stuff. And now we're getting back to the mode where we're actually building a game as with the entire company, everybody doing the same things. So obviously, there's multiple sides of that thing. I think if you have a great game and we can see that we can constantly improve that game and the numbers are looking really good, then I think it feeds the motivation for people. So I think that now it really makes sense to put the effort of the entire company. This is one thing. Because it looks so promising. There's no point on trying to uh, complicate things at this point. Thinking about your own progress through CEO of a gaming startup, you guys are like 10 years into the company, right? Yeah, almost, yeah. The recent success that you've had, how has it been mentally for you, the emotions and everything? I think mentally for me, personally, I think that this year after raising our latest round and kind of validating Battle Legion as a game and uh, now working our way towards the global launch and getting the game out. I think it's super exciting, of course, multiple ways, because the game, I think there's much more potential than anything that we've ever built before. So that makes me excited. But also, it's been kind of a little bit easier for me. I have this ease of mind now, in a way. Of course, we're still on a clock in a sense that we raise money from investors. We have certain we have to get the game on, it needs to succeed. There's some pressure on that, but still now everything is working pretty well inside the company. The project is going forward well. We have enough cash to pull this through. So it's been easier for me at this point mentally than on the previous years. How do you kind of find the energy to run a growing company? Like, Do you kind of reflect on what's been going on somehow, writing a journal? Do you have a sleep practices around that working out stuff like that for me always like i think mentally having exercise or some kind of like physical activity has always been a thing for me and a couple of years ago i actually found found a new hobby which is free diving that has been helping a lot but that's one of the newly found interests i have but but it really helps with the kind of managing stress and so forth so that's been one of the big things but yeah, otherwise, I've always been a kind of person that I have quite a bit of energy and drive to go forward. And of course, during this nine-year period, there's been times when I've been, you know, more tired, a little bit down on some of the years because it's been tough sometimes. But then always you get to a better time and it's been quite a roller coaster in a way. But it's always been the fact that I really love running the company and I couldn't now imagine doing anything else. So overall, it's been really good but hectic years. How has your style of running your company changed over the years, especially now that you're growing? Do you have a certain kind of like role model, a CEO company that how you're building Traplight? You actually have many role models. I couldn't name one, but just a lot of the people that are discussed, I tried to pick up as many things as possible. Maybe the biggest change personally for me has been to move away completely from the programmer and technical side of things, from that role an actual like a CEO, full-time CEO role. Because for many years, I was both. I was like trying to handle the financial stuff, running the company all the day-to-day, that kind of business things, but also being very involved with the products itself. And I'm super precise on how to do things on the programming level. And I really love the details on the products. So I was sometimes kind of my brain was being kind of pulled away to the two different worlds. So it was sometimes hard, but now I actually find it easier because I can concentrate fully on the leadership part and kind of like on the business side of things. Even though I'm still super interested, one thing I shifted my focus towards is the metrics side because that's still like 
trying to understand the product on very precise level, but that's not programming anymore. So that's my new passion is more on the metrics side than mm. running the company, obviously. How is your team kind of coping with the growth? Do you discuss the values of the company constantly? What is the culture aspect there? Yeah, of course. We are now 28 people. And, and of course, when we started with two people, so it's a very different company now than it was in the early days. And yeah, we had that slow growth over the years. So I think that always introducing more people, you need to constantly evaluate the culture and the values of the company. And luckily, one of the co-founders, Sami, is, is a very good in that sense. That he thinks about the values of the company and the vision and the direction a lot. So, so we really had a good discussions with Sami and, and Yari, both of the founders, on all these matters. And of course, with the entire teams. But yeah, there's definitely been a change over the years. I cannot name any specific things that have happened. But maybe overall, the culture, we tried to build a company, especially now that the size of the company is growing, we try to focus more on the communication and ways on how to communicate and the honesty and the openness inside the company. I think there's so many small details on that, for example, just with the communication. And it becomes more important once your team grows, how the different, different people talk with each other. On the communication side, do you have any specific things that you recently kind of discovered or that you want to share? Actually, the most recent discussion has been on, on just the production processes and tools on how to keep the information. So there's multiple parts to that. There's, of course, people communicating, but there's also the tools and processes to try to help to make that communication as good as possible. I think that the most recent one is that we just reevaluated how we organize stuff. And we were using Trello and Jira in the past. And now we moved to a little bit different tools. But those kind of things happen all the time where you kind of try to organize the workflows and the information flows differently. And then also the organizational structure on what do people work with and what is expected from them and what are they responsible of. And those things need to be revisited all the time. So they don't ever stay constant. Totally. Let's go into some final questions here. What is your favorite book and why? I think this is a very hard question for me. I'm more of a movies guy and, and I don't honestly read that many books. But most of the books I read, I thought about it, were mostly on the philosophy books or existential pieces. So those are the kind of books that I've been reading mostly. And nowadays, of course, maybe some diving books and stuff like that. I really thought hard on what would be the most like if I would need to select one book. And I came to a conclusion, it must be Super Naive by uh, Erland Law, a Norwegian writer. That's a classic book from, I think, 98. And it's uh, at that point when I read it first time, it was very good timing with that book for me. So Good stuff, man. Do you have any stories that have shaped who you are today? I don't have any specific stories, but I do think I have a couple of different points in my life especially looking from the work perspective and, uh, and running the company. And, and this really affected me. So one key point was as a teenager when I was starting programming and I was working with computers that I really didn't get that much support at the time because, as you knew, from early 90s, it was not really a popular thing to do to program games or, or stuff like that. So I learned to be very independent and kind of stubborn to just do my thing and uh, I like this, and if nobody understands it, then you know it doesn't matter. So I think that that was one of the key things that actually continue till till to this day. That I make sure that I stick with things I believe and I feel that are good for me, and I love to do, even though there's sometimes resistance. 
from maybe people outside my own field and own expertise. So that was a big point. And then I think the second one is moving away from the indie development, solo mode. Because I worked with my own process so much and you know just building games by myself and doing a lot of that. So moving away from that first by going into the industry and working with the companies and kind of just learn to work with other people on these products. That's been a huge eye-opener. And lots of pain points also, because you know when you work as a solo, you just build games in indie mode, you can control everything. But then you will need to learn to let go of certain aspects of control and things. So that was a very big point. The latest one and kind of the moving to this full CEO role, learning to sell and pitch and promote also myself, but the company, like the whole thing, because I didn't come from that background. That was not me when I started in this role. So that's been a huge learning process and kind of pivoting point when we needed to raise the funding and kind of get into that mode, trying to actually sell stuff in a sense. That's awesome. Yeah, all of those really resonate for sure. Thinking about the aspiring entrepreneur, do you have any kind of like things that you'd want to say to a person who's starting their first games company? They come from those points I mentioned just now. So basically, just do your thing. Basically, if you want to do it, do it. And then and be brave to contact other people and kind of talk with as many people as you can and get out of that solo mode at some point. Because nowadays, especially building games is not a solo thing. So you really need to be able to work with teams. And then, of course, set some milestones. Try to have a clear, or at least some vision Of course, you cannot have always the clearest vision. That's one thing in the games that you never know the outcome of things, but you need to strive for the next milestone and then the next milestone, and you will eventually see what happens. And then also maybe learn to listen to advices. I've gotten so many good advices. Sometimes I didn't follow those, (laughs) and sometimes I did so. But I think that I should have maybe followed more (laughs) more advice. So always, even though you're doing your own thing, I think it's good to listen to advice and understand that many people have Face the same problems and the same mistakes before. Yeah, that is a scene that then, I have as well suffered from <laughs> not yeah. listening. And I think everybody needs to learn, in a sense, like how to take feedback and basically break it down so that it makes sense for you in your situation. Yeah. One thing I want to mention is also if something is not working, then maybe letting it go. That's also super hard. You need to learn it at some point, but it's been hard for me, you know. Because if you're stubborn, if you have that kind of mentality that I will make this work, then it's also very hard to let go of stuff at some point. Right? That's a good thing to learn as well. Definitely. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Record. Where can people find more about Traplight than yourself? Yeah, I think the web pages is a good way to start. So traplight.com is a good place to see some information about the company and learn about the new game that we're building. But also, of course, you can feel free to contact me and uh, find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the easiest way. Great. Thanks a lot, Rico, for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.